Hello and welcome back. Yes, it's episode two in our autumn winter season of the Story Hive podcast. Our normal reminder is please go to our main platform, three W's, thestoryhive.co.uk, the home of amazing audio stories. And you're going to notice that week on week and month on month, it gets bigger and bigger with lots more genres and things being added all the time. Now, without further ado, as I like to say, let's get on with that first story. And the first story today is from the Just the Job collection, and it's a bit of a killer one, this, and it's called The Scientist. The air smelt fresh and slightly metallic, and she stood and gazed in awe. It happened every single time, for there it stood, the Hadron Collider, the world's biggest there in CERN Geneva the greatest scientific research facility on the planet, in her opinion, which being, as she held three firsts at Oxford, it was a thing that was taken very seriously by everyone in the scientific community. Her new experiments were showing excellent results, huge potential, way too complicated to explain to people, but all but the greatest minds. But her knowledge was unsurpassed in her field, she believed. And there she stood, the huge machine, dwarfing the space it occupied. Technicians wandering around it, great gantries cabled and covered, complicated lighting panels, junction boxes and workstations. And Celeste smiled and thought back to her school days, the science fairs, the prizes. Little could she have imagined back then that she would end up here, a place she dreamed of visiting, let alone a place she'd have an office and her own research team in these hallowed environs. She was driven and she knew it. Her lack of male company, a testament to her focus. Not that she'd been without men. Henri had lasted a while, Gustave, Marion. But there really wasn't room for them, not in her life, not right now at least. And she often told herself someone would come along. Of course, her parents were hugely proud. Well, of course they were. Daddy, a professor at the Cambridge Institute, and Mummy, a visiting lecturer at King's College. A scientific family, the papers had called them, in that recent interview. And they were. It had been a long day as she walked back to her car and she glanced out the main gates towards the protesters. There were always protesters nowadays, it seemed. Mostly religious, some just out-and-out conspiracy theorists. Where did these nutters turn up from, she wondered. And she slowly accelerated out the security barrier. Huh. There she was again. She'd seen her before, that woman. Celeste recorded just from yesterday. She had a strange outfit on, a torn pink plastic marker, crazy-looking boiler suit covered in strange symbols, and a hard hat like a builder would wear. But most weird of all, a feather boa, pink and fluffy, trailing out behind her. Strange. As Celeste drew level, the woman suddenly ran forward, screaming something about the gates of hell and sharply banging her on the window, causing her to flinch back, the woman now yelling something about unleashing the darkness, opening the portal, and she screamed again, spit now flying from her mouth, the forces in her mind clearly beyond her control. She just looked demented. Where the hell was security, thought Celeste, getting angrier now. And then she felt grateful, as with a hint of embarrassment, two security men speedily pushed the woman to one side and Celeste could continue on her journey. She looked back, the woman still being pulled away, her mouth contorted as she continued to shout her madness. Thank God for that, she thought. God, where do these people come from? Oh, well, 
She pushed the woman from her mind. She had a lovely fresh lasagna waiting and defrosting at home, plus hopefully a nice bottle of wine, her assistant Robert having popped in earlier. He was an absolute godsend of a graduate, smart, funny, and most importantly, not remotely fanciable. And therein lay disaster, she knew that. Attractive young assistants, she'd seen it all too many times before. That wonderful Korean scientist last year, recalled by her institute, the young man in question, his career possibly damaged forever. Of course, there were rules. They were all agreed upon. Nothing was written down. There was a kind of curious moral code, no fraternisation. And it was harsh but necessary in any realistic scientific environment. And a car now picking out speed, she thought of her lasagna and headed for home. She sat and ate slowly. That next week was crucial. All the test results pointed to one thing. A very complex formula that, if correct, could discover hitherto unstudied phenomena of particle matter. The whole team were excited, young Robert and Francesca almost hopping around in the lab area nowadays. Celeste thought back to her early days. She steadily worked her way up the ladder. Difficult for a woman. Rapidly, most people had said. Institutions and research groups now keen to apparently hurl money at her. She was very handsomely rewarded, the fact made easier by her various money-spinning patents from her earlier career in polymer design. That was her father's field of expertise. Much of their work together and the attendant products now used in factories and manufacturing hubs all around the world. It was a highly lucrative market and it had assured her family's fortunes, although her first love was her current line of research. And here she was at CERN, her career as high as it could ever get, more glittering than ever she'd imagined. The golden girl, they dubbed her, all the major scientific magazines and journals praising her. She took a sip of wine and remembered Robert that morning who casually remarked upon the crazes as everyone called them. She'd actually been invited to give a PR talk to the press because some placarded protesters had nearly scaled a security fence and a young man had fallen and been very badly injured. The centre director didn't want any more publicity, he said, and he didn't care how ludicrous the reason that Celeste could give a talk to explain to the public exactly what they did at CERN. And she'd been very happy to oblige. And in fact, she delivered a very calm and measured interview. It was accurate but in a very understandable way for normal people to understand their work. She explained the Collider was in fact a microscope, one that allowed them to see the molecules that made up things, the same things that became our environment at a subatomic level, tiny things, letting them, the scientists, understand how everything worked, how everything was created. Yes, she said, it was a complicated machine, but it was very safe. It wasn't like a nuclear reactor. It couldn't blow up or cause damage. It simply pushed things together, atoms and things. And then she made some charming, light-hearted jokes, which went down very well, all the reporters laughing long, and the centre director had been very pleased, he told her. She took another sip of wine and thought about that woman again. She was clearly mentally ill portals and things you could tell it seemed a shame shouldn't someone look after her where were her family why didn't the authorities help these people that woman in a plastic coat her troubled mind 
frantic and clearly lost. That next afternoon after lunch, Celeste decided to relax in one of the garden areas and she'd take a break. Mummy always said that. Gather your thoughts, gather your mind. It was very sound advice. She reread one of her favourite books, had a wonderful preface, stating that science didn't know everything, but it wanted to. She loved that quote. She knew, without research, things were hidden. She also knew that science could and should reveal them, and it could find the unexpected. The place where every major breakthrough had occurred was in science, and the examples were numerous. The discovery of penicillin, the Teflon coating, the ozone layer. They had finally revealed all sorts of things, including global warming. Many were happy accidents, but they all led mankind forward, saving lives, changing lives. Celeste felt it very strongly. Science was a clear force for good. Once in a live on-stage interview, she had been slightly caught out by just one single question. The interviewer had read out a list of the negative effects of science, first citing the atomic bomb or the various drugs that had damaged people. Celeste thought her answer very clever. She stated the law of unintended consequence, but, and she'd warmed to her point, scientists were learning so much all the way they went along, and it was tragic sometimes, but always necessary, for eventually everyone could benefit. They had to be cautious, they had to be careful and considerate. But then she ended her answer by saying her work took all those factors into consideration. She took nothing for granted. Everything was safely planned and that brought her a huge round of applause. The rest of her day passed uneventfully. The figures being run again and soon it was time for her to head back home for bed. And thankfully that day there were no protesters. Security had seemed to obviously clear them away. And she felt they were rather like the weather. They came and went. And she grinned to herself. <laughs> They'd be back tomorrow. And sighing she picked up a magazine and a glass of a particularly fine Merlot the centre director had sent over only last week. Now that's a lovely way to end my day, she thought. The preparations were complete. Everyone was on standby. And the atmosphere in the collider area was buzzing. Today was the final run. They would take it up to maximum level. And everything they'd learned so far had been amazing. It had revealed so much. The computers capturing every precious piece of data. Just one more run at maximum and then her experiment would be over. It could be a breakthrough. In a way, she felt quite emotional. Those last years, her team, their triumphs, their disasters. But best of all for her, the faith. The faith so many people had put into her. She was the golden girl, and if anyone could break the boundaries, it would be her. And Daddy's message that morning had said exactly that. It said, you're the best daughter in the world, nothing else matters. She smiled, and adjusting her headphones, she gave the start signal. 
and the technicians began the first process. A low hum, slowly filling the air. Minutes passed, her ear defenders now warm and snug-fitting, this huge collider cycling up to each new higher power energy point. She looked at the computer screens, the databanks filling, her team busy, noting, cataloguing. Everything was on track and going so well. The culmination of five years of her life was about to happen, and it would happen in just one short five-minute burst of time. Science was wonderful, she felt. All those discoveries, just waiting, her inner strong feeling, and not without a smidgen of ego, that a Nobel Prize maybe could come her way. Daddy has said so. Mummy too. She watched as the collider cycled ever higher, the experiment continuing. The lights began to dim now. Standard procedure, she'd been told. Screens now being easy to read. Then her assistant, Robert, pointed to the far wall. They'd seen it before. It was just a light anomaly. The collider apparently did that, the technician said. But it was very pretty. A normal operating effect. Energy inevitably creating light distortions. Hmm. She looked at it again. This one was very unusual. Very fascinating. She noted it in her log and took a picture. Fantastic. Maybe a new offshoot phenomena. Possibly a different breakthrough. But then, annoyingly, the room continued to darken. The lighting was now faulty. Just a technical error. Of course, the huge collider required a lot of energy, she felt. Flickeringly, the light anomaly on the wall slowly expanded, and she hoped the cameras were getting it. It could be a whole new field, unique to her. And she watched as it brightened slowly, and then a glorious-looking glowing red circle lit up. That seemed odd, and it struck her as aberrant. But it was so lovely. Glorious colours. Maybe a picture for one of the magazines. Possibly a book cover. How wonderful, she thought. How unusual. It got brighter. Now almost blinding. And then she saw them. Three of them. Stepping out through the circle. As if it was a doorway. Huge things. Thirty feet tall. Flaming horns, cloven hooves, great dark wings like bats, scaly bodies, fire roaring in their wake, their sharp, serrated fangs bared, and behind them a legion, waiting to follow, waiting to burn. Well, we hope that one made you shiver a bit. And now moving, zooming on to the second story in today's selection. Again, it's from the Just the Job collection, this one's a little bit different, and it's actually called The Portrait Painter, and we bet it's going to surprise you. The provisional work had all been completed, and this was the final sitting before the commission would be finally finished, and the minister inwardly sighed as he sat back in his chair on the podium. No photographs had been taken, only sketches, as apparently that was the custom with the great man he'd been told. Something about modern technology almost debasing the noble and classical art of portraiture in the eyes of many and muddying the pure waters of great art. Yeah, right. 
His bodyguards were sitting outside the studio door, two in the garden, some more in the car on the driveway, and plus the rest of the team were now comfortably ensconced in the rather large spacious kitchen. Such security precautions just standard with his position in the world. Ha, the place has gone mad, he thought. But then he thought about his upcoming retirement plans and they prompted a benefactor at his old university to suggest a portrait be commissioned for the Great Hall, something the minister was secretly very pleased about. Then the great man himself entered, gravely extending his hand to the minister, his grip firm and almost studied, his sharp blue eyes almost disconcerting as they seemed to peer into his very soul. The painter went and stood behind his easel, his wife, his assistant apparently, preparing paints, lining up brushes and handing him a palette already spread with mixed colours. He waved her away like an annoying fly, causing the minister to feel very sorry for her. It was strange, it had been like this every time. The poor woman seemingly indispensable, but somehow irrelevant to the great man. His tone often both harsh and unforgiving, calling for water. Tea, tissues, throat sweets, paint, brush. It was as if he couldn't locate them and she was just a skivvy and not actually his wife. Oh well. The minister sat as the sun beamed in high above them through the huge domed skylight of the studio. It was a separate building to the large and highly well-appointed manor house the great man occupied with his family, apparently children around somewhere. That day they'd scheduled four hours into his ministerial diary, the helicopter coming to pick him up at the end of the session, a parliamentary committee regarding his presence as its chairman later. And he breathed in and out slowly, as instructed by the great man himself, no movement if possible, concentrate at all times, stare at a cross marked on the very far wall beforehand. It was annoying, he hadn't actually been allowed to see the work so far. Of course, that apparently was unthinkable, but he was really curious to know how it was going to turn out. He'd seen the great man's work before, and it was truly monumental, compelling, and most importantly, almost strangely flattering to his sitters, seemingly disguising chins and blemishes, with a close regard to the viewer's aesthetic needs. The works themselves garnered huge sums, not that was an issue here, as all financial matters were only discussed with the benefactor and the great man's representative, which, to the minister's surprise, turned out to be the great man's wife. The same wife he barked at in annoyance, grabbing things from her hands, barely acknowledging her presence, even if she was some sort of machine delivering whatever he felt he desired. This the selfsame woman who negotiated his eye-numbingly large fees. Hmm, very strange. The room was cool, a state-of-the-art air-conditioning unit somewhere, silent, keeping the room at exact correct temperature, and the great man had explained its marvels on their first sitting, this, the fourth, being the last. He looked around. He saw the canvas was large, and he liked the idea of that. It meant the portrait would be something big, hanging with his fellow old boys and previous notables, the space already earmarked in a spot he rather liked in the great vaulted room he'd spent so much time at university and earlier. Pah, before all this, he thought, the political life, the manoeuvring, the longed-for status, the climbing the greasy pole carefully and treacherously, the international diplomacy, the bodyguards, the public profile. Ah, that's life, I suppose. 
he felt uncomfortable. The great man hissing at his wife again, this time something about blue paper. Blue paper. What on earth was all that about? He did it every single time, but he gave up thinking. It was probably some artistic code or something he couldn't understand, and he didn't want to. Just make me look good, he thought. No, hold that. Make me look great. The poor woman suddenly scurried from the room and was only gone for two minutes before she rushed back in and placed the asked-for blue paper in the painter's hand. He glanced at it, clearly reading something, then almost contemptuously he screwed it into a ball and just let it fall at his feet. The wife, now getting onto her hands and knees to retrieve it and place it in a wicker basket next to his easel. The great man nearly stepping on her in the process, his face now grim and still full of absolute concentration. This carried on every hour, and to the minister's great surprise, the pantomime was just repeated several times. The same thing. The great man calling for more blue paper, the wife rushing to go and get him some, his scowling scanning of each new piece's contents, followed by the balling up and dropping onto the floor, each piece then being collected by her and put into the basket. But the great man worked on, brushes flying over the canvas, followed by great long moments of him studying it intently. Very unsettling, the minister felt, almost invasive as those incredible blue eyes scanned him like a distant laser. Thankfully, he was allowed a drink break of five minutes in each hour, and the minister sat, sipping a chilled white wine, the non-allowance of any mobile devices or personnel, an absolute contractual condition, once again, presumably, the minister thought, set out by the great man's wife. Yeah, he couldn't stop thinking about it. The wife, the poor creature. Yeah, clearly an abusive type arrangement going on there, he felt. He'd seen the way some of his colleagues treated their spouses. It was no different, seeing them as mere props and appendages to support their greatness. Ah, well, <laughs> he smiled. He adored his wife, Wendy. She was his rock, and he knew how lucky he had been to meet her. She was smart, pretty, content to stay a barrister, part-time. She'd even paused her career to have the children, never complaining. Yeah, he thought. He'd tell her what happened later when he got home. He always told her everything. That had been their agreement, full disclosure at all times. And she had been, and still was, his secret asset, an advisor and a reader of people. But more importantly, an amazing wife and companion. Soon the session was coming to an end, the great man now hardly touching the canvas, simply moving about behind it as his poor wife hovered around him, getting him more blue paper, moving things out the way, handing him bits of cloth and brushes. The minister was fascinated by them, and he chose a moment to surreptitiously glance at his watch. Yeah, the chopper was due in 30 minutes, the time had already been set and agreed on, had to be precise obviously. But he knew he had no worries on that account, because he wanted the painting to be right. And then he mentally started to prepare himself for the flight back to town. Suddenly the great man held his hand up, now asking for yellow paper. His wife's face looked positively anguished, and she shot from the room in search of his strident demand, returning almost immediately. Hmm, the minister was intrigued. Now this was a new one. He'd never seen that one before. Now he wanted yellow paper. 
and he watched as the great man knelt down and scribbled some rapid lines onto its bright surface before parentally shoving it into his wife's hands. She carefully read it, scanned it a few times, and then, without really looking up, she knelt down, crumpled it into a ball, and dropped it on top of its blue counterparts in the basket, pushing it down with the bottom of her hand. As she did this, the great man muttered something to her. The minister couldn't quite make it out, and then he just told her, Get out! His voice had been low and then loud, but the minister had heard that tone before. That cold, dismissive, almost devoid of emotion, Tombra, indicating almost distaste out of presence. To be honest, it had made him a little uncomfortable, but, well, that's some people. Why did the poor woman stay with such a monster, he thought? Hmm. He was alone in the room now. It was just him and the great man himself, who now gravely stepped forward and thanked him for his patience and forbearance, rather flatteringly telling him he'd been a very fine sitter. Then came a soft knock on the door, and at his ringing tone, Come in! Two young assistants then entered, and carefully now, covering and turning the canvas around so the minister couldn't see it, they wheeled it away into a different room behind the great man. The painter smiled and, excusing himself, said he just needed the bathroom and would the minister be so kind to wait for him to return. And there, turning on his heel, he went out through another side door, now leaving the minister alone in the magnificent domed room, the sunlight now streaming down around him. Oh, thank God for that. He stood and stretched. Oh, God. He felt a lot more relaxed. Now he wasn't needed, well, until much later. And this gave him no hurry or pressure. And then a sudden thought struck him. The blue paper, the yellow paper, the white, what had all that stuff been about? He carefully looked around and listened. And then he went to the waste paper basket. It was there, just where it had been throughout the entire session, every single time. And he remembered the poor wife coming in and out, going out like a greyhound. And bending down, he reached in and quickly uncrumpled one of the sheets. The blue paper, very fine, a sky-bluish colour, its texture not unlike satin. There were some lines on it, written in a beautifully scripted bold hand, in red ink, bright against the sky blue. And they read, My dearest husband, I love you to the moon and stars and back. You are the greatest artist in the world. Your work is simply brilliant, you are a great painter. You are my reason for living. He picked up another note, and it said exactly the same thing, and the breath caught in his throat. He couldn't believe it. The brute had been so cruel to his poor wife, and yet she'd written him this glorious thing over and over again. What an arrogant, ungrateful monster, he thought. But then he remembered the yellow paper the great man had called for. What the hell was going on? He strained his ears to hear if anyone was coming, and now, watching both doors carefully, he scrabbled around until he found it, right at the bottom. And carefully he smoothed the yellow sheet out on his trouser leg, and squinting at the spidery hand of the artist in blue ink, he read, My darling wife, who is my muse, my truth, 
the air in my body, the love I feel in my soul for you is boundless. You make me who I am and all I am. Without you I am nothing, worthless, a fraud. I could not paint. Every brushstroke is for you, and I could not breathe, and I'd simply die without your tender love. Forever and ever I love you, to the moon and to the stars and back again. You are my inspiration. You are my breath. You are my everything. Well, it's nearly time for that third story. As we say, normally at this point in the podcast, we talk about writing and all the things to do with it. But as we've said, pop across to our TikTok, have a look at our little videos. We think that's going to be very informative. Also, it allows us to zoom straight onwards to the third story, the final one in today's episode. And if you like dark humour and a bit of truth, this one's going to be right up your street because it's called The Crematorium Director. It wasn't how he'd planned his life, not in the slightest way. It'd be more of a series of accidents, really, moving from job to job, making ends meet like so many people. But he liked the area. He'd grown up there and it suited him. He couldn't explain why. Which was the reason for his current position at the crematorium. Like so much of his life, it just seemed to be a disconnected and random series of moves he'd made. From the warehouse, to the driving job, to the activity centre. And then the key move, the job at the funeral directors. Greg had the face for it, Mrs Bosworth had said. The money at the activity centre hadn't been good. Prices had been rising, and then Tony down the crown had pointed him in the right direction. Bosworth's were a local institution, had been for over a century. The original Mr Bosworth setting up his shop and business in the days of horses and coffins on carriages. No one left their jobs at Bosworth's, it seemed. They arrived, stayed, retired or died. Such was the reliability and fairness of the family-run business possibly combined with the family faith of being Quakers. The current head of the company was Mrs Celia Bosworth, a formidable lady, calm and collected, with a sparkling sense of humour. And it was her appraisal that Greg's face was perfect to work amongst the dead that had persuaded him to join the company. He'd been very happy. The hours were good, every other weekend off, half day on a Wednesday, plus a funeral plan to cover his own later needs upon him leaving this mortal coil. And so he'd steadily move through positions, starting like everyone in the garage, then the stores, then the back office, then pallbearer, until he'd made it to leading the funerals from the front, top-hatted, silver-caned and grand. Typically, it had been Mrs Bosworth who'd suggested his move to the crematorium. It was run by the local council and had strong links to Bosworth's, going back it seemed forever, and supported with her, she'd pulled strings, her links in the business life of the area strong and far-reaching. And it had been her guidance, the exams she sent him to pass, the support she'd given him, and perhaps most kindly and surprisingly, the encouragement to court her granddaughter, Rowena, the subsequent marriage and three children, clearly cementing him into the Bosworth family circle. Greg was very grateful. The new job came with a splendid Victorian house, a highly comfortable position, a staff of absolute gems and a very pleasant salary and pension. Now he knew he wasn't what anyone would call ambitious. 
His friends agreed. He was a quiet man, a kind man, who seemed to move through life gently and with purpose. A hard worker, everyone agreed. And his father had been the same, now a retired gas engineer living in a retirement home. Greg's mother having safely been gathered to the arms of the Lord some two years past. Of course it may have sounded cruel, but business was good. It always was. Mrs Bosworth had made it very clear to Greg upon his first day that they were in an industry with an inexhaustible supply of customers, although she referred to them as those who had passed through the veil of tears. It was a fact, as people showed no signs of not dying daily year on year, and the crematorium diary was full, like always. They inclusively catered for all faiths being non-denominational, although Greg had become a Quaker himself, no doubt the influence of Mrs Bosworth and he understood the spiritual needs of every faith he encountered in his day-to-day -day work, becoming an expert in even the most arcane of rituals. The traditional religions followed a very standard pattern, however. Many other large religions had their own cemeteries, and in fact never cremated their past family members. However, this still left a decently sized smaller group who embraced the concept of cremation with a few attendant ceremonies and rituals. Now, Rather bleakly, many societies who had once shunned the very concept of cremation were finding that graveyard spaces were taking more and more land, harsh economic facts of building and farming space, overriding once strongly held beliefs. And Greg, however, did his best to accommodate all who passed through his gates, the Garden of Remembrance, the three chapels of rest and the large car park, even the small children's room for the comfort of mother and babies, a new addition from last year. And often he'd sit with Rowena after the children had gone to bed and tell her of his day. She worked for the family company, although there was never a hint of impropriety in the relationship between Bosworths and the public-funded and council-run crematorium that employed Greg. Everything was regularly scrutinised, audited, and public viewing of their relationship available on request. Not that it ever arose. The process was a very simpler transaction of crematorium costs being passed to grieving families via Bosworths and other local funeral directors. Of course, there could be no hint of favouritism or profiteering, and everything ran smoothly, all being treated fairly and equally. The simple fact being it was a matter of the main diary. The official channels were clear and open to all. Most who'd lost someone using an intermediary to arrange everything with Greg and his team. A series of forms and protocols on offer to guarantee the nature and fulfilment of all the services held in the chapels of rest. Official use of the crematorium was a fairly complex matter, requiring reports, official certifications and notifications, removal of medical devices, some implants, watches and mobile phones, although jewellery could be left in place. The sad fact being it would be by the process of carbon reduction separated in the furnace and be irretrievable by the family. But said forms and paperwork and procedures were best left in the hands of trustworthy and professional groups like Bosworths and the Co-op Funeral Service and of course sundry smaller local help and support organisations. Greg understood that for most people services followed a familiar and almost traditional pattern the family and other mourners would arrive at the designated chapel of rest. They would have chosen music and the appropriate decoration of the chapel. Flowers usually, some balloons, once a giant inflatable elephant, 
Then a funeral company vehicle would arrive. Following this, then either family members, Bosworths or co-op funeral staff would carry the coffin into the chapel and set it onto the velvet-covered conveyor belt, the belt that led into the back of the crematorium where the furnace chambers were. A service would then be held. With a religious minister or chosen representative, songs, poems and speeches would take place. And then, upon the agreed and fixed one-hour service length, the coffin would be gently slid into the preparation room. Once in the room, the deceased would be placed inside the furnace chamber and reduced to a fine grey ash, said ash later being decanted into a funereal container or urn of some type. The one exception, the saddest of all, where some poor unfortunate passed alone. Unmissed, unmourned, without benefit of family or friends, to be disposed of at the discretion of the local council, their passing, unnoticed and unreported, anywhere. It was indeed part of the rich and often threadbare tapestry of life, Rowena had said to Greg, a practical and sensible woman, a dedicated mother and fine wife. And Greg ran an efficient operation. He had to. The need was constant. One very important fact here being a good flow system. That was the key. The services running back to back every day. And not to put too fine a point on it, they couldn't hang around because demand, as usual, was high, never wavering, the higher older population ebbing and falling year on year. And it was imperative to get the recently passed into their final fiery journey as quickly as possible, each furnace chamber in constant use, each event requiring a full clean and washdown. It was a rather grim but not unreasonable fact, being that people did not want the ash of their loved ones mingling with the ashes of complete strangers. And efficiency was the name of the game, and the team knew their roles. The furnace chambers being designed in such a way to keep a good stream of deceased individuals isolated, gathered up, packed into a sealed and correctly marked bag, thus leaving the chamber ready for the next unfortunate client. Greg was meticulous in his preparation for those saying goodbye to their precious ones, carefully reading their forms and requests, ensuring the day went smoothly and without issues of any type. His Quakerism instilling within him the need for calmness and peace at all times. And that next afternoon was a classic example. A Mr Hector Gonzalez, late of Buenos Aires, a one-time citizen of Argentina, who'd reached the ripe old age of 80 and 6 years of age before succumbing to a vicious bout of local pneumonia. Now survived by grieving widow Carmela, daughters Maria and sons Ramon and Eutimio. Greg had solemnly greeted them as they had entered the large beechwood chapel of rest. He'd introduced himself, offered condolences and he made sure they knew he was entirely at their service at this difficult time. It had actually been a bit of a struggle to get everything into place as Greg's replacement, Rowena's cousin Tim at Bosworth's, had struggled with Mr Gonzales' widow's incredibly thick accent. Her children, poor things, so lost in grief. And he felt a lot had been lost in translation. But somehow, thankfully, poor Tim had got through it all. The forms were completed correctly, the official requirements had been met, and everyone was satisfied. And so, as he looked around, 
Argentinian flags have been found. Huge bunches of Keldo flowers, the national flower of that country, they've been procured. Money clearly not an issue, judging by the high-end coffin. Greg's phone buzzed silently. The second service reminder. Just a standard operating protocol. And it alerted Greg to the next family to arrive. And silently and smoothly and briefly, he left his position at the back, going to ensure his assistant Jennifer and the smaller Roslyn Chapel team were in position to facilitate the best second service of the afternoon. The Grand Beechwood Chapel of Rest looked splendid, Greg thought as he returned. The huge Argentinian flags, silky and vibrant in the sunlight, streaming through the large windows. A soft breeze making them move. Greg had been given to understand it had been the late Mr Gonzalez's wish that his ashes be scattered in the local wild woodland at Flitworth. Such was his love for his adopted area and country. And of course his desire to return to the bosom of the Lord through nature. Everything proceeded as normal. Everything going well. The mainly Argentinian mourners had sung in the native tongue, rousing songs redolent with pageantry. And the coffin had smoothly slid from sight, the widow nearly inconsolable, the children almost collapsing. Greg kept his face neutral, but concerned. People needed his strength at that time. Years of seeing this grief, hardening his heart. But not to be insensitive, but his connection was more of a functionary than an active participant. He looked around. His phone was set on silent, as always, but then it began to vibrate, which was rather unusual, and surreptitiously he glanced at the screen, carefully turning his back so as not to be noticed. Oh, it was a code red, a pressure build-up in one of the furnace chambers, a very rare event. And then it happened. Before he could even turn, the explosion, the one that took out half the back of the furnace room, sending the now dearly departed Mr Gonzales' final remains into a rather dazzling but unfortunate 400-yard flaming trajectory into the Garden of Rest, out by the furthest lily ponds. The salient but sadly overlooked fact, unbeknownst to anyone, due to the language barrier and heightened grief of his family members, that the late Mr Gonzales had in fact been the recipient of a very early pacemaker device in the late 1980s, back in his home city, a place noted for the brilliance of its surgeons. However, this clever, tightly sealed, gaseous-filled device that had been put in place to regulate his heart rhythm had unfortunately been left inside his corpse, and now simply in the heat of the fiery crematorial chamber had exploded with the force of a large hand grenade. Greg now froze, and the tear-stained Mrs. Gonzales suddenly appeared to rush from the front of the chapel to stand in front of him. Her face wreathed in a smile, and she grasped his hand, her mascara-run features now bright and happy, her children crowding around him, clapping him on the shoulders. And she looked him in the eyes and spoke, her accent strong and heavy. Hardly fireworks, Mr. Greg. Just such a wonderful touch, my Hector. He, how you say, he loved the fireworks. You are a brilliant man, truly brilliant. This is the best crematorium in the world. And Greg's mind whirled. 
Maybe he'd call Cousin Tim very soon. Well, we hope you like that one because we think it ends with a bang. Oh my God, these puns are terrible. Anyway, time for us to go. So as we like to say, we hope the world is full of magic today. Bye now. <laughs>